<clears throat> evening, everybody. If you want to turn with me, please, to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. We'll just begin with a little reading, perhaps, but just to remind us of what we're trying to see as we go through the book of Hebrews is that um, it's a it's a letter that was written and sent to believers somewhere, we don't know where, but believers that had a particular issue to be addressed. And these are uh, folks who had been saved for a long time, long enough that they ought to have been able to instruct others, but still had a fairly basic message that wasn't really able to help all of with all of their needs. You know, they they had to actually be taught again uh, the first things about the gospel, uh, which is part of our text tonight that I'll, I'll likely skip over because we talked about that. But um, <clears throat> the idea is that it's an exhortation for them to uh, go on to perfection. And um, now Mr. Jenkins reminded me that I shouldn't kick around words without giving a little bit of definition from time to time. And one of the words is perfection. And uh, it comes up a number of times in Hebrews. So when, we, when we're thinking about the idea of going on to perfection, the, uh, the idea is maturity. The idea, uh, I think it's uh, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto good works, is how it's referred to in Second Timothy. And the idea of being prepared, equipped, trained for, for the use uh, it speaks of Christ, in fact, as one, as in chapter 2, um, <clears throat> in chapter 2 and verse 10, it refers to him in such a way like this, uh, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So that it's the same word being used there and the idea is of course it it's not just that it qualifies him or makes him something more than he was but he's he's being uh, presented here as one who is sympathetic he is fully qualified to do the things now because he has entered through all the things uh, that we will sufferings something that god before time hadn't been accustomed to right? and so the idea is he's he's fully equipped for the service that he's uh, uh, now engaged in. <clears throat> and you find that in a number of places. So where I want to start uh, reading tonight, and we'll, I wanted to define uh, rest a little better too. Not define so much, but Wayne caught me on the weekend and, and asked me about uh, rest after the one meeting. And uh, it occurred to me that I assigned people to go home and take a look at all the different places where rest was. Uh, refer to, and then of course I didn't go and make a decent enough list myself. So <laughs> anyway, so uh, I thought I would uh, I would just do that as a matter of of clarity too. But uh, rest in the Old Testament is referred to many times, and the reason it's significant here is because chapter uh, three and four uh, discuss that, and uh, what has happened is. Some have taken the idea that not entering into rest is possibly a, 
symbolic of of not actually attaining salvation in the end. And we want to disqualify that as an idea. But uh, interestingly, this this word for rest that, uh, um, it's, if you're looking up your Strong's number, it's Strong's number 4494. I won't try and um, <clears throat> pretend to pronounce it for you, but it's found seven times. And it, it's a kind of a place of rest. And it's uh, first found in Genesis 8-9 as an example of, of a kind of a rest here. And it's where the dove found no rest for the sole of her feet, her foot. A place where she, there wasn't a place that she could stand that would be considered rest, a place of cleanness, right? a place of uh, safety. And we, we discover also um, that, this is now moving on into Deuteronomy, there's a rest from enemies that was promised that they would be, this is the children of Israel now, they would be scattered among their enemies to the point where their soul, the sole of their feet would not find rest, would not find a safe place to stand. And you know what this kind of rest feels like. Sometimes, you know, after preparing for a message, you get home and you feel you rest, right? You don't have it up in front of that necessarily, right? If you've uh, had to do that. So it's the idea of a place of uh, peace, of quiet. Uh, there's no threat here anymore. Perhaps, you, I don't know, if you showed up at a kingdom hall and listened to one of their messages, you probably wouldn't have a lot of rest there, right? You'd be restless because you know you're, you're in enemy territory, so to speak, right? So uh, Ruth, in chapter 3, verse 1, there was, she found rest, this same word, in a relationship, a place of safety, security, peace. Um, the Ark of the Covenant found rest. Uh, a good, an interesting one. Let's turn to this one in Psalm 116. This is the. Sorry, I tell you to turn one place, and I tell you to turn to another place. That doesn't seem right, does it? <laughs> but in Psalm 116. Incidentally, there's few, few of us here tonight that somebody has a, a comment or a thought or a question or something like that, and you want to uh, raise your hand and, and ask, uh, we can kind of divert there because there's so few of us. And anyway, but so in Psalm 116, um, this is interesting. If we just read even from verse 1, it says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications because he has inclined his ear to me. There I will call upon him as long as I live. The, the pains of death surrounded me. The pains of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You have delivered my soul from death. Let's stop there. You can, as, as you read that, you recognize that you have delivered my soul from death is a, is a similar phrase that we're going to cover in chapter 5 tonight, back in Hebrews. But the idea of you know, the Lord Jesus passed through a place of unrest and was delivered back to a the place of rest. And what we wanted to get out, what I was 
trying to emphasize as we went through what was being instructed in chapters 3 and 4 about rest is that, that those that fell in the wilderness didn't find the rest of God. But those that entered into the land, it said, they also didn't. It says in uh, chapter 4, verse 8, that Joshua didn't give them rest. So that wasn't the rest being looked at in particular here. And in fact, it says um, down in verse 10 of chapter 4, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from him, from his. And so what I was trying to emphasize is that in light of the context of Hebrews, what's being mentioned here is that the Christians are intended to go on to perfection, on to maturity, make full proof of their ministry, and that they ought to be able to go on to a completed work. Now, it's interesting to notice that Moses himself didn't enter into the promised land, right? And there's a measure in which he didn't really complete his work in that you recall the incident with the rock, right? Which is why he didn't get into the promised land. He was asked the first time to strike the rock. That rock which was Christ, uh, says in First Corinthians 10. Uh, but uh, And he did. And then the second time, because of his uh, shortness with the people of God, he struck it again when he was told to speak to it. And we understand, looking back, that these are... These are two instances that he was supposed to sanctify the Lord in, in the eyes of the people, and he failed to do so, so he failed to enter into the land. He didn't actually finish everything fully. Now, we want to we want to not take anything away from Moses because the scripture records that he was faithful in all his house, right? And lots of other good things about Moses. So I'm not going to be here to tell you that uh, there's, there's an issue about Moses. We know that he enters into the promised land. Because uh, Christ met him there, right? But what we what we do know is that what's being emphasized here in Hebrews is that those that fell in the wilderness did so because of unbelief. They were ones that had every opportunity. They came out with Moses. They they had all of these uh, things, but they could not go on and complete the work because of unbelief. And so, for the Christian, belief in Christ brings salvation. I shouldn't say that. For the, for the person who's lost, belief in Christ brings salvation. For the Christian, belief in Christ means he goes on and grows and finishes the work that comes. We, we still continue on in this journey as we go. And it all must be done in faith. Right? Without faith, we'll read later on, it's impossible to please him. Okay, so is there anything else you'd like to add on that? I just want to be clear that we're just, just we're speaking here, my estimation in the context that uh, we want to enter in to the finished uh, work that the Lord has for us. Now, I want to begin in chapter four and verse fourteen to to establish the link into the next part, and we were I want to talk about. Uh, the priesthood of Christ, really, as we go. So, beginning in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That standing in contrast to the other priests who are tempted, uh, yet with sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find help, find grace to help in time of need. Uh, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He uh, He can have compassion on those who are ignorant in going astray, since he himself is also subject to weaknesses. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So, again, that's emphasizing what was just previously stated of Christ. Without sin, your your average priest, the rest of the priests, all the other priests, had sin to to first offer for themselves. Anyway. And then the second thing we notice, he goes on here, and he says, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God. So the role of a priest was one that had to be called by God. Just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So both of those statements indicate that this was not something that the Lord Jesus uh, dreamed up on his own. It seems as though he was appointed by his father. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. You'll find that quoted three times in the New Testament. Interestingly, it always refers to him being raised up. Uh, this one raised to the office of a priest. Elsewhere, it's uh, in Acts, it's raised in resurrection. And it's quoted also in Hebrews chapter 1, where he's raised to the right hand of God. <coughs> Um, And then it says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. There's our phrase from Psalm 116. And was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, is the point, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So I want to pause there for a second and then move over to the end of really where I'll probably go, but on the off chance that I don't get there, at least that we've read it. So down chapter 7 and verse 22. Kind of in the middle of the sentence. Let's go down to verse uh, 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us. That is, we we needed one like him, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints as high priest men who have weaknesses, but the, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Now this is the main point of the thing we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Okay, so we'll pause there and just ask for the Lord's help for a second here. Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus and all that he is. We pray that you would help us not only to understand the facts about him, but the, the, the way that he ministers to us on a daily basis. And uh, we pray that our lives might be uh, worthy of, of those that take thy name. And so help us to walk in your ways and to ourselves go on to the perfection you speak of here. We give thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, back to chapter uh, 4, and just looking at that verse 14 for a second. All my little notes scattered abroad here. You can count how many times I look down at them. <laughs> but um, it says here, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed uh, into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Or if you have a King James there, it'll say hold fast our profession. And um, what I wanted to understand and you probably do too, in going through the study of Hebrews, is there's a lot of sort of technical things, it seems, right? It's a lot of work going through Hebrews, as you know, because there's a lot of places you have to go back into the Old Testament and look and understand their context and establish what was going on there. What is being brought up here? What is, what is now learned about Christ in that situation? And then, why is he telling me this? Again, this is an exhortation to people that need to grow. And you can imagine, as they got this letter the first time, you and I have, you know, we've become pretty seasoned at Melchizedek, right? But these people never heard this idea before. And in their minds, you can sense it as you read through it, they still thought of Christ as somebody that was like their usual priests. And the emphasis here is... Blatant that he is not like those in that way. He actually has a, a a new ministry now that they never had, and so he compares him to this Melchizedek as he goes through. But I wanted to um, I wanted to mention this because when you go through those first couple of chapters of the warnings of neglect and the warnings. To, to hold on to faith and make sure you enter in. It, it causes people some griefs. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I had to uh, renew my professional status, which means I had to um, you know, log on to the PEO website, Press Engineers of Ontario website, uh, now you have to do a little course, a little online course, refresher, to remind you of the things you were already supposed to know. And then after you successfully do that, I don't know, did you have to do that, Gary? Yours hasn't come up yet? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
So, and then you have to pay a bill, and and then you have to report to how you're learning and growing over the next year, and report the number of hours that you did certain professional upgrades and whatnot. Anyway, as I went through, the refresher was this. Where I'm going is that the profession of an engineer, or I suppose any anything else out there that has a professional society governing it is similar to our profession here. And you'll notice as we go through. So I go through the code of ethics. And the, the code of ethics indicates how a professional engineer is to behave and work. It doesn't talk about his mathematics or anything like that, the things he's actually doing, but his, his code of conduct is what they are concerned about. And the fact that he works within the law, that he's not a cheat and, and all those things, and he's not uh, passing himself off as something that he is not, and so on. So as you go through that, one of the questions was, it had to do with, um, I'm trying to think of just, I didn't write down exactly how it was phrased, but it had to do with this. Uh, what... Uh, what are the legal consequences of failing to live up to the code of ethics uh, for the professional engineer? Something like that. And uh, which body governs that legal aspect? And they listed a number of bodies. One was, you know, European, and one was, well, the uh, Code of Ontario, and one was something that was ridiculous. And then there was none of the above. And so I picked the one from Ontario. And because that was wrong, I had to read through the whole thing. And Anyway, the answer is none of the above. Right? So there is, there, is no, I'm, there is no legal binding. I can't be sued. I can't be taken to court for not living up to the code of ethics. Why am I telling you all this? Because a lot of people, they feel that as a Christian, their profession is such that they, they live under a law whereby if they fail to do something correctly, they can, they can be somehow fined in the legal channels of God under the law. And that's not true, right? Because we live under grace now. So, the question then came as a result of this, and it was this. <clears throat> the person narrating the thing said, um, why adhere to a code of ethics if there are no consequences for failing to do so? All right? That was the question. I thought, huh, that's a good question, isn't it? I get that question all the time. Are, there, are you sure there's no consequences if I fall short here? But the answer is, there's no legal consequences. My soul is sure and safe. And so, what kind of consequences actually come to the engineer is, well, they, if, if, if I'm misrepresenting them and it can be proven to them, well, they'll take away my stamp and it doesn't mean I can't do engineering. It just means I have to have somebody else authorize the technical documents now, right? But the thing is, uh, the, the consequences are not a legal one. It's only my, this, this professional body that is able to decide, right? I thought that was quite interesting because they pointed out that the reason we want as professional engineers to do things according to the code of ethics is 
universal, so this is their text, universal compliance with the code of ethics will encourage trust in the profession. Right? <clears throat> it, in, it establishes norms in the behavior, and if followed, it will create predictability in how engineers will act, which is crucial, they said, to a profession. You see, it says trust is the hallmark of a, profe- a profession which provides guidance in situations that produce risk to others. Okay. Well, you're not engineers, but you're Christians. And I'll tell you what, for our profession to be meaningful at all, it's really just the same way. There's no consequences, but we do this because we love Christ. We want to represent him. We want him to be seen in the best light. And so as we as we hold fast our profession, our confession, which is what this is, what we say we are, if we do it faithfully, others will have confidence that what we're saying is so. How many times have you heard people who say, oh, I, I could never believe that because, and they point to Joe Christian over here who's just a poor example. Maybe they're a Christian, maybe they're not, who knows. But the thing is, it's if the ones that are real are are holding fast their profession, then they will actually represent Christ in a way that helps. We have, people are in danger. What we are telling them needs to be correct and, and is critical for them to trust what we're saying so that they can come to safety. I mean, the metaphor is similar to what, my, what I was learning there. I mean, to build a bridge, you trust me that it's going to, going to hold your your weight you go across without even worrying about it because there's there's confidence there that's why that's why we hold fast that's why it's important that we obey even though there's no you know consequences of hellfire to us because there are consequences somebody else may get our crown right i don't get to stamp the drawings somebody else gets paid the exorbitant prices to do so i just have to do the work Anyway, so all that to say, there's, there's a little earthly example that I, I felt particularly helpful in clarifying the transition from hold on to this, keep going to the end. You read that a few times in chapters 3 and 4, right? Hold on, if you keep going, yeah. And that's what it's really all about. So, so let's take a look here. And we're going to move down. Uh, in particular, I'd love to spend some time, but you can think about this uh, this. Uh, the idea of uh, Christ who in the days of his flesh offered up prayer and supplications. Now, I, I don't want to dig into that with you really here in, in two minutes or less, but I'll move on to Melchizedek because that's really kind of the uh, the point that was new, especially new in this chapter. But he was a son, and he was a son who obeyed. And because he was a son who obeyed no matter what, he becomes the the author of eternal salvation. Notice, by the way, all the places through Hebrews where things are eternal. And salvation he provides is eternal here. Okay, so so let's move on to chapter 7 and verse 1. And this follows on, on a little explanation there. Abraham is mentioned in verses 13 to 20. Uh, as as being 
one who God interacted with in such a way that he gave Abraham a promise. And it says in verse 15 of chapter 6, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And after that, God provided an oath for him to even still continue to keep going on. And we have in Christ the same thing. He points out that that Jesus Christ was declared with an oath also to be the kind of a high priest that we need. So God not only promised that what we are looking forward to is coming, but that he put his own oath on Christ as the one who will get us there in order to help us to keep going. But let's just read down. We're going to read this little portion here in chapter 7 about Melchizedek. Um, Probably not the whole thing. Actually, I'm going to skip down to... (laughs) Okay, we'll start in verse 1. Actually, let's not start there. Let's go back to Genesis 14. As I look around, I realize everybody here knows the story of Melchizedek well. But I find it interesting because Melchizedek doesn't, isn't the kind of high priest that offers a, a bloody sacrifice, is he? You don't read about that. That's not the kind of priest he is. He's, he's an intercessory priest. And he, that's why I went to the end of Hebrews there, by the way. Because that's the kind of thing we need. One who ever lives to intercede for us. So in Genesis chapter 14, you, you know how the story is. He's, Abraham is on his way back from defeating the kings and rescuing his nephew, Lot. And he comes back victorious, and he comes back with the spoils of victory. Um, and in verse 18, Melchizedek, the interceder, intercessor, interceptor really here, isn't he? It says in verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. That is, Abraham gave him a tithe. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me, the, uh, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abraham rich, Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten in the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. All right, so just stop. We'll stop reading there. But just, this is so familiar to us, but it's precious really when you, when you flip over to Hebrews and you find out that, that the writer there says, we have a high priest who's like that. And he's, he's like that because He intercedes. Now, in Romans 8, 
the Spirit makes intercession because we don't know how to pray. Right? He intercedes up this way. But Melchizedek here is interceding down this way. You notice that? He intercepts Abraham, Abram, he's not Abraham yet here, on his way from just the, the hard battle of trying to be a witness in the land back home, right? He came at his own expense. He went to war. He rescued Lot, you know, Lot, a fairly ungrateful fellow in the whole scheme of things. And, and back he comes and knowing that there's trials and stumbling blocks waiting for Abram at every turn, he intercedes here, he intercepts, and he comes down, and the first thing he does, you know, is he brings bread and wine. Uh, he communes with him in a very uh, unique for this time in the scriptures kind of a way. And and then it says he, he blesses Abram of God most high. The highest God. And then he reminds him of the fact of the victory that it was God who delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham, Abram gives him a tithe then of all, all that he had. Well, this is unusual in that Abram wasn't really looking for him. I don't, I don't know that Abram knew him. He's not mentioned anywhere else. But the idea is that what Abram needed at that time was provided to him. God had won the battle. God was uh, uh, the one who was going to provide the means of communion. He got a special blessing from heaven. Given. Now, you see why this is important as, as we walk as Christians here to know that, there's, that our high priest is not only up there just watching what's going on, but is instrumental in what we're doing down here. He's, he's provided a weekly communion for sure. I mean, our access moment by moment to Christ now comes on the basis of those simple emblems, doesn't it? Because he has, he has made the way. He has provided. I mean, we come here once a week to remember him. But we have access to him because of what we remember once a week. And we have that moment by moment. And what we remember as we go is that he is the one who has blessed us and is continuing to do so. Blessed be Abraham of God Most High. And not only that, but as a result, he says, he reminds him that, Abraham, you're not the master of the day today. I know it looks like you won the battle, but God has delivered your enemies. And so that as we go through our day and start feeling maybe pretty good about ourselves, we're reminded that he won the battle today. And whatever I face in the, my next moment might be somebody come to try and fool me into thinking that I join up with him, you know, so that he can say, hey, look, what I've, I've helped like the king of Sodom did here. I think this is uh, one of the most important takeaways that we want to get in how this works in our real lives. He's providing circumstances. Kevin, Kevin talked tonight about an accidental meeting, right? No, there's, there's no accidental meetings. God Most High causes us to prosper. 
How important is it that we recognize and have constant communion with them to notice that? You know, had Abram been carrying on, just didn't notice him coming out, wouldn't have been aware that the Lord fought the battle that day. He'd come along and he might have been feeling pretty good about himself and and joined somehow with the the king of Sodom. That's one of the lessons to take from there. There's there's maybe others, but, but he's brought off those pages just to point out what we have in Christ. And I think that's a real thing to remember. So that the book of Hebrews can be real in our lives. As we consider that we, we appropriate this, how imp- that would be so helpful in holding fast our profession. Now, later on, we're going to get to where uh, we go through the list of chapter 11 and all those ones that kept going even though they didn't receive the promises. They still looked. They didn't look back. They were waiting for a city. They were looking on ahead. They were resting in the promises of what was to come. Well, we're looking on ahead for a city. And as we go, we're not, we're not slothful about it. We want to imitate those who through faith continued on. And so that's uh, the lesson of Hebrews, or of Melchizedek. So back to chapter 7. We'll just notice here, he mentions about, um, so in chapter... Two in chapter three. It's interesting here. As you read and you see types in the scriptures of which this is laid out plainly, what we find is that um, Christ is not like Melchizedek. Okay, we don't want to say that. We want to say there's some little way in which Melchizedek was like Christ. That's that's the idea here. Like any shadows, of which there's many in the book of Hebrews, they're just like that. They're a, a shadow is a reflection of some 3D thing on the ground. It turns it into a flat thing, makes it a little oblong and funny shaped and fuzzy at the edges. And sometimes it's hard to tell if the light's not bright from the background as well. But the idea is that the, the 3D thing is the thing. And the shadow is, you know, some measure of, of that. Melchizedek... Uh, gives us real license to know that the type that types exist in the scriptures, but he only pulls cer- certain things off the page to to point to these fellows that uh, the people that he was writing to to look back again at those scriptures that they long knew and look at them and look for Christ in them. It was those foolish and slow of heart not to believe all the prophets spoke of Christ, and it says there that he. He opened unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And you can only imagine what that was like that day. To start to, to see for the first time, oh, this, this was Christ. See how he had to suffer there? See this one here? He had to suffer there. Look at how they suffered in the same way. You can only imagine that they couldn't wait to get their Bible open again. And look for some more. and see Because I'm sure it wasn't a long enough day to get through them all. So here he points out, he says, well, uh, notice the names. You know, sometimes the preachers, that's the first thing they do is they want to find out what the names meant. So he says, well, here he was. He was the king of righteousness. That's what 
Melchizedek means. And then it says, well, he was also the king of Salem because he ruled over the city called Peace. So he says to the Hebrews, hey, put those two things together. What do you think he's talking about? Right? King of righteousness, king of peace. And then he says, well, you, you see how th- this fellow's father and mother aren't even mentioned. He just kind of jumps in on one page and off on the next page. and That's all you ever hear about him. And he doesn't say, I don't want to stretch it here. But he says, God here was saying that he's a kind of a picture of somebody who's going to have an unchanging priesthood. Now, as we go through, the, the next number of verses really points out uh, what is summed up maybe in uh, verse 11. I'm buzzing up here, George. Sorry. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? The short story is, the priesthood that was used in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, was insufficient to complete the picture, to finish the work. And so, God tucked in the scriptures in uh, Psalm 110. There, a, a little phrase, David wrote it, Thou art forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek pointing out that there was a a new priesthood that had to come. And he goes on and explains it's not from the law. It was different than that. That's why Christ qualifies. He didn't have to be uh, according to the lineage of Abraham or of Aaron, um, Levi, that is, and so on. He comes down, he points out that because he lives forever, uh, this is now down in verse 24, because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those that come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for him. The thing about the Aaronic priesthood was that that they, they died and then they were replaced by a son and then replaced by a son and so on. And what's What's important to notice about that is that death terminated that, that priest's function. And it screams to us that it couldn't finish the job. So with Christ, and these are things that we know, of course, but the fact of the matter is, if my salvation were based on somebody that might die tomorrow, I'd have reason to be concerned. Because it does not, I do not have reason to be concerned. Because he has finished. That's why he's no longer offering sacrifices. And that's how it concludes there in verse um, 27. He does not need to daily as those high priests offer up sacrifices. Uh, First for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once, not for himself, but for the people he did once. So he not only doesn't have to offer for himself, but he also doesn't have to continue to offer for the people. Because it was once and done.
So chapter 8 begins with this, and that's why I read this earlier. Now, this is the main point of the things we were saying. So all of the things I skipped over, uh, which are interesting and are helpful to us, and we should learn and be able to understand and explain, the, the main point is this, that we've got a high priest like this. We have it. But we want to appropriate the usefulness of the high priest. So, the high priest, again, he, he represents us to heaven and represents heaven's desires to us. He directs things down here. This is the ministry of the high priestly office that Christ has now. And we'll go on next week. My time's done now. But we'll go on next week to look at the fact that he's now verse 6 of chapter 8, he's the mediator of a of the new covenant, of a better covenant, which is established on better promises and so on. So we'll end there for today. Is there any, is there any questions? I skipped a, a number of things. I understand that. And um, there's more to be you know, gleaned out of there. But any questions, comments? Or? Yes, sir. Yep. Exactly, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, the idea is any profession is supposed to be like that. And some more or less. I think the PEO strives to do that, and they see because the thing is back. So as far as engineers go, the PEO uh, was late in become in being a profession in uh, Canada, I suppose, where they have uh, authority to regulate things, how things are done, and all the rest of that. And not only that, though, what they do is they're able to maintain the fact that not just anybody can call themselves uh, an engineer. So, I mean, they can charge you if you're out there telling people you're an engineer. So, um, actually, I don't exactly know how that all works. I don't read all the court cases. There's a number of them that come to me in the mail about all, all the litigation that goes on. But the idea is that, uh, that, that they want it to be so that it's a, a profession that can be trusted. That's right. And so we want to think of ourselves as people that are professional, that that have a profession, right? That's how we came into this, right? We profess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart. That's our profession. Hold right? fast your confession. That's right. So um, that's that's what we have. I think the the more we understand what what we have been brought into, the more useful and faithful and that we'll realize that we're equipped to do big things. Like we're we're children of God. We're in the royal family. I don't I don't know how to <laughs> give adequate explanation to, to who we are now. But we're here on purpose to represent the Lord Jesus in this way. 
That's why all of those things in Hebrews 11 where people walked by faith, they did hard things, but they weren't hard because they endured as seeing him who is invisible. They saw something else. They knew who they had believed. And so as we think about that, hopefully it, it, it's the thing that is our... Well, that's what it says here, right? In uh, chapter 6 and verse uh, 18. Uh, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge uh, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and enters the presence behind the veil where the, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, let's uh, bow in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you uh, for the Lord Jesus. We confess to you that sometimes we are um, lazy in our desire for him, in our time spent with him, in our communion with him. And we recognize that you never sleep nor slumber. You are constantly watching out for us, looking, looking to guide and direct and equip us as we go. We pray that we might make that job uh, much easier and that many, as a result of the profession that we have, uh, come to know you. So, Lord, help us to walk in faith, to turn from that which would stumble us, and to hold fast the things that are true. You've given us so much in the way of scriptural examples. You've given us so much blessing in our own lives, and you've taught us so much as we've gone. We just wish to uh, give you honor for that and uh, to walk in the way we are. And so we just commit each one here to you. Lord, bless the, the fellowship here and those of the Christians that dwell in Tavistock and in southern Ontario. We pray that at this age where, uh, where this world can't tell the difference between darkness and light, we might stand for thee in a way that really makes a difference. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.